Well, one thing I always have enjoyed is driving. So whether or not I'm good at it, you can ask those who know me, or don't ask, that would be my preference. But I, just, I love, it's relaxing for me to drive long country drives, see country roads, different sorts of people, places, landscapes. And in my opinion, one of the most interesting drives, one of the most interesting roads in this broader area is a uh, road over the mountain in West Virginia called Hewitt Road. Uh, some people pronounce it Hyatt. It looks like Hewitt. Uh, some of you have driven this road. If you ever visited our, our members that are in Charlestown, you might have. Some of you might have even driven it this morning. And let's just say, for those of you who don't know it, Hewitt Road is not level. So if you've ever wanted to get air in your car, Hewitt Road is for you. Sorry, parents of teenagers, I just gave them that idea. Because as you drive Hewitt, it seems like whoever first built that road didn't care to remove any bump, any blip. They just simply paved over what was there. So towards one end of Hewitt, you actually come over a ridge and there are scratches from countless undercarriages that have gotten way too close to the road surface. I think I might have gotten air, at least on the front end of our family van, at least once. It's a fun ride, not a smooth one. What Hewitt needed, what West Virginia needed, was for a good old-fashioned bulldozer to plow through, level the surface of the earth before the asphalt was applied. Because a smooth road is a good road. It's a road ready for traffic. Well, Noah just read for us our passage this morning. And in our passage, God is coming to his people with salvation. And before he arrives, he sends this man to clear the way, to make a road smooth, to prepare an entrance for the coming of the king. He sends a preacher with a message of repentance. Repentance, as we'll see, would be that spiritual bulldozer blowing up the hard hearts of God's people and preparing the way for his mercy and grace to traffic through. In this text, this wonderful text, we see three things this morning, church. The preacher, the sermon, and the one to come. The preacher, the sermon, and the one to come. And the, one to co- uh, the second point will be by far our longest. Heads up on that. First, the preacher. So for the second time in as many Sundays, church, we're fast-forwarding significantly in Luke's history about Jesus. Last week, we went from Jesus as an infant all the way to Jesus as a 12-year-old in Jerusalem. This week, we fast-forward even more, over 15 years later to the late 20s AD, and we see John the Baptist preparing the way for an adult Jesus to launch his public ministry. You look there at verses 1 and 2 that Noah did a good job reading for us. Uh, Luke, ever the good historian, places us in a very specific historic context that's backed up by extra biblical thing uh, sources. He starts really from the highest political figure at the time, the Roman Caesar himself, Tiberius, and he works his way sequentially down through the rank and file of leaders. So the, the governor of Judea, Pilate, the Hebrew tetrarchs of various regions, Herod included, then he finally ends up with the religious leaders of Israel themselves, the priesthood, Annas and Caiaphas. As we go through Luke, these names will come up again as op- opponents 
of Jesus. And so it's in this context that the word of God comes to his prophet, John. Uh, Luke began his gospel back in chapter 1, you'll remember, by showing how Zechariah had been in the temple and had received that promise of God, that he and his wife, elderly as they were, would have this son who would prepare the way for God to come with salvation for his people. Here, church, that word is fulfilled. This is a theme throughout the first few chapters of Luke. Promise, fulfillment, promise, fulfillment. God never reneges on his word. John begins his earthly ministry. John is not God's salvation. He's the plow coming before the seed is is planted. He has come to prepare the way for God's salvation. He is the preacher of the Lord. Look at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan. Jordan was a river running down through Palestine. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's proclaiming something, and we'll get to that proclamation, we'll get to that sermon soon. But for, for this uh, point, just notice John's role. John is coming to fulfill what God had prophesied through Isaiah the prophet. He's come to be this voice, crying out to alert God's people to his salvation on the horizon. Look there in verses 4 through 6. Luke quotes directly from Isaiah, and he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The the idea here is of how you would prepare a road before the entrance of a king or a ruler or a monarch. John is this forerunner. And he's going to say later in our passage, the real deal's coming. He's the plow tilling up the hard soil before the seed is planted. This is a key moment in world history, in the history of God bringing redemption to sinners. John is operating as a bridge between the promises of God and the fulfillment. In a way, he's the last of the prophets. And he baptizes the Lord Jesus Christ. His voice rings out in the wilderness like a cymbal crash. He's a prophet saying that the fulfillment of God's promise is coming. Israel must be prepared. And he's tasked to preach a message that will make ready the hearts of God's people for this salvation when it comes. He'll make the road from Hewitt Road to a straight Kansas freeway for the Lord and his salvation. So what is John's message? This is our second point and our longest point because I think it's really the heart of this whole text. What needs to happen in order for God's people Israel to be ready for God to send his salvation? Look at verse 3 again. John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's message is, come all, come and be baptized to show your repentant hearts and be ready to receive God's forgiveness. John's baptism was a special event in the history of redemption. So his baptism was not the same baptism we celebrate in our church today. John's baptism was a one-off thing. Preparation for the coming of Jesus. Meant to be a, a picture of soft hearts 
ready to receive God's salvation. John's baptism would not save people. In and of itself, it would not forgive sins, but it would get ready God's people for when the forgiveness came. Repentance is the plow that prepares the soil of the heart for God's salvation seed to be planted. What is repentance? Throughout the Bible, we see repentance is a turning from self and idolatry to God. In the Old Testament specifically, it's, it's meant to, to connote a changing of mind away from self to God. A, a good text for this is 1 Thessalonians when the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica and says he has heard a report about them. What's the report? How they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's a very succinct biblical definition of repentance. So church, can you see why repentance is the necessary preparation for salvation? Repentance pulls our eyes away from ourselves and seeking meaning and salvation from within and turns our eyes up towards God from whom salvation comes. Repentance is the road by which God's Savior arrives. See, salvation only comes to those who know their need of it. Jesus uses an illustration later in Luke of a physician and a sick person. His point is that a sick person will not consult a physician if she thinks she's perfectly healthy. Only a sick person who comes to grip with her sickness goes to the doctor and receives any help and healing he can supply. In the same way, only a person who knows he has a sin-sick soul will go to God for soul healing, soul salvation. That's why repentance in the heart, this posture of need, is so important. Repentance is the turning away from what is killing us and the turning to God to receive his salvation. Without repentance, we're lost. We're, We're curved in on ourselves. Never exposing our sin to be forgiven and washed away by the grace of God. But to be clear, repentance is not a way we earn God's favor. Repentance is not a work we do to be saved. In fact, you can go uh, this afternoon onto our website and read again our statement of faith here at Loudoun Valley. Based on a Baptist confession of faith from over 150 years ago where repentance is called both a duty and a grace. Something that sounds very oxymoronic. How can something be something you do and something you're given? Well, remember, we are dead in our sin apart from God's intervention. We're unwilling to do what repentance does. Turn our eyes from ourselves up to God from whom salvation comes. Even repentance, therefore, must be given us by God's grace. Even repentance is a gracious gift from God. But it's a gift we've got to open. It's a gift we've got to use. Now, as we look forward to kind of the holiday season and Christmas coming, some of the gifts you all are going to get are going to be gifts that are not meant to be used. They're meant to sit on a mantle and look pretty and collect dust. 
There's nothing wrong with that. That's what they're meant to do. That's their design. By repentance's very design, it must be used, acted upon by faith. It's a gift God gives us that that then becomes our duty to carry out. So it's not a way to earn God's favor by our own effort, to twist his arm into accepting us. Even repentance, church, and this is such good news, even repentance is a gift given to us by God so we can turn to him. J.C. Ryle puts it well when he says, no quantity of repentance can ever justify us in the sight of God. He's saying we can't earn our salvation by the, the most wonderful, tearful repentance. But then he says, yet, without repentance, no soul was ever saved. Repentance, church, is a must if we were to turn and receive God's grace. So John comes and says to God's people waiting for God's salvation that the way they will be ready to see and receive his salvation is if they come to grips with their utter sinfulness. What Joe read for us earlier from the Valley of Vision, the utter sinfulness of sin and their utter need for grace. True repentance will look like action, change, turning. For Israel... Turning again to God will bring them to their knees, awaiting his transforming grace. Church, the baptism of John is no more. It was around for a little while until Jesus came. Yet the principle is still true for us. In order to walk Christian with God and receive his salvation, we must repent and believe. We must pull an about face. Some of you are familiar with the story of Rosaria Butterfield. She is a great testimony to the value of repentance. So Rosaria was a, was a PhD intellectual professor at Syracuse, an outspoken lesbian, no fan of Christianity. She tells her amazing story of investigating the words of the Bible. But she could have done all the investigating in the world as a smart PhD academic. She realized that what she needed to do was repent. Turn to God in faith in order to receive his mercy. She realized that she needed to let go of the rule of her own life and give herself over to her king. So this is part of what she writes about it. She says, I repented of my pride. The pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules for faith and life and sexual autonomy. In this entire process, I learned that repentance is the threshold to God. Repentance, and here she quotes the Puritan Thomas Watson, repentance makes way for the solid comfort that can follow. Repentance is the threshold to God. For Rosaria, if you continue reading her testimony, repentance cost her pretty much everything. Her lifestyle, her relationships. She says all she had left was her dog. She says it was a pretty good dog. 
Now, as we look at our text, we see John's hearers start to come to grips with that as well. Repentance will mean life change. Look at verse 7 with me. All these people are crowding out to the River Jordan in the wilderness to hear John. And what does he call them? It's not really the greatest seeker-sensitive approach. You're trying to grow something. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Interesting greeting, John. He's saying something to the effect of, are you coming to repent? Do you understand what that will mean for you? Do you understand that wrath of God is destined for you if you will not? Where's your heart? The idea of vipers is kind of venomous, right? Deceitful. You think about it, he's in the wilderness. There are probably plenty of them around. Maybe he's drawing on images as he preaches. They too, even as God's people, will experience God's wrath if they don't repent. Then in verse 8, John says those famous words, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, live like you mean it. If your heart is truly repentant, is sincere, I'm going to see it by the way you live. Show it. Reminds you of James later in the New Testament talking about faith. There in verse 8, he has a stern word for Israelites. I think especially when you look at Matthew, he's he's talking to the crowd, but I think he's focusing on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who are self-righteous. He's saying to those who rely on their family heritage to get them in good with God. In other, basically, I couldn't care less. He says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. It's kind of like a parent. Uh, 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 I know what you're going to say. Do not even try to say we have Abraham as our father and therefore we're good with God. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's saying it really doesn't matter in the long run whether we're related to Abraham. God can create Abrahamites out of the rocks you're standing on. What matters is your heart. What matters is not being related to Abraham by flesh and blood, but being possessive of the faith of Abraham, as Paul will talk about in Romans. He's saying what matters is your heart. Is your heart soft towards God, needy for his forgiveness? Is your heart a heart of repentance and faith? Because Jesus' arrival will mean God's salvation has come. That's for sure. But it also will mean God's judgment has come. The day of the Lord has come. And in Old Testament thinking, that included salvation and judgment. Some will respond and be saved and others won't. We already saw Simeon say, this man will be opposed. And so John is calling the Israelites to make a decision. Are, the, are you going to be truly repentant and ready for God's mercy to come or not? In verse 9, he uses the illustration Jesus will use later in Luke of a tree bearing fruit. He says that if, if a tree doesn't actually produce good fruit, the tree ought to be cut down and burned up. In the same way, if a heart does not produce the fruit of true repentance. It ought to be cut down and condemned. 
Christian, it's important to remember here that repentance is not just something you do once at conversion, when you walked forward at that service, or when you prayed that prayer. It is the first step. It's essential in God's first work in your heart. It's always a gift from him that then you can carry out by power, by his power through faith. But it's never a one-time deal. Wasn't it Martin Luther in his first of the theses who said repentance is daily for the Christian? It's a continual massage, softening your heart to God, nurturing love for him. So this text, church, calls us to look at our hearts. Are we living in repentance? True repentance? Jim read earlier for us from 2 Corinthians. And Paul is talking to the church and he makes the differentiation between true repentance and just worldly repentance. The difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Because there is a conviction, there is a grief, there is a sorrow that is true repentance because it leads to change of mind and direction. But then there's the repentance that just mopes and pouts and doesn't change. Christian, are you truly repentant? How's it going with your sin? Are you really repenting or are you just Are you just feeling conviction? Which is kind of a cool thing to say in church. Yeah, I've just been really convicted about not reading my Bible very much. And that's a good thing. But are you acting on that conviction? Are you seeking change? Drawing near to God will mean a daily habit of repentance. That's what we sang sang earlier, right? True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. No wonder. No wonder John the Baptist's message is called good news later in this text. Repentance draws us close to God's loving face. Christian, turn to God. Don't be like the Pharisees who are trying to use their parents and their family heritage as a crutch. Like, well, they, they were good, good with God. I'm going to be too. Don't don't try to subdue the thoughts of conviction and guilt like Herod does in verses 18 through 20. What does he do when John calls calls him to repent? Well, he locks him up in jail, right? Hear God's voice and turn to him. You will find ultimate joy there. Repentance means change. That's what we see in verses 10 through 14, right? The crowds come up to John including tax collectors and soldiers. Do you think those two groups were very well esteemed at that time in Israel? No, they were hated, both of them. Both of them had this authority that they would regularly abuse. And so they come to John and they ask the question that should always be asked when we are convicted by God's spirit. What should we do? What should we do? That's the question repentance nurtures in the heart of a believer. What shall we do? And so John says, change. Turn away from your sin. Turn to God. Tax collectors, don't cheat people anymore. 
Don't take more than you should. Soldiers, don't use threats to kind of get your power, abuse your power. Repentance looks like change, not to earn God's favor, but as part of his favor showered on us, causing us to turn to himself. Friend, following Jesus will mean changing your life. And it will be worth every last change. So this passage calls us to take stock of our hearts. So, brother and sister, Christian here at Loudon Valley, just stop for a second, think. What's that sin that you're regularly convicted of? You're reading God's word, you're praying, you're with other believers, driving on the way to work, and the, the thing that just pings at you and causes you guilt. The sin that threatens your joy and your very spiritual health. How do you respond when that conviction comes? Are you merely sorry? Sorry because you see the consequences in your life. I'm kind of bummed that somebody else found it out too. Sorry that you have to feel guilt and it ruins an otherwise happy day. Or true repentance, seeking help and change. This is one of the sermons this week that, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to pray that, that what I preach hits me because otherwise I'm just going to become a incurably obnoxious pastor. And this one hit me. There's a lot of things I can feel bad about. And I can even say, Lord, I repent without any desire to do so, without any plan to do so. Are you truly, have you truly, are you seeking to truly implement repentance when you feel God's good conviction? This is part of why being part of a local church is so crucial, right? The author of Hebrews says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you're struggling with a sin, and you're not sure how to repent, reach out to somebody you trust in this congregation, somebody in your community group, somebody you're meeting up with. Ask for help. Repentance is a team effort. And each one of us needs it. Repentance is not a bad word. As Rosaria said, it's the threshold to God. John's the preacher. That's his sermon. But the most important part of this text, I think, is about the one who comes after John. And that's the final thing to see this morning. Look at verse 15. Uh, people start hearing, they, they hear John's message, they're, they're deliberating, they're talking, they're thinking, questioning about whether this might be the Messiah, the Christ, the deliverer God has promised to send salvation to his people. And he says straight up, unequivocally, no, that's not me. Just kill that rumor in the water. He is not bringing a baptism of water, or he is bringing a baptism of water, but he's saying there's somebody coming who's bringing a greater baptism, something my baptism just just anticipates. And that man, when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
He's going to give you new life. He's going to actually forgive you. And there in verse 16, we catch a glimpse of just the humility of John. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie back in in those days. Not even Hebrew slaves would untie sandals. It was too beneath them. He cannot even do that to the Lord Christ. He says, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The images of harvest time, right? So a a winnowing fork with a wooden fork-like shovel that you would dig into the grain and toss it up in the air. And the grain would kind of fall back down, but the chaff and um, husks or whatever you call them would kind of get blown away by the wind or a fan. And, and then he's, he's saying that the wheat is God's people, right? This is a picture of judgment. As the, the grain and all of it is tossed up into the air in judgment, God will save and bring back his people while those who have stubbornly rejected his offer of grace will be blown away. Jesus is coming to save, and that means he's also coming to judge, to bring the repentant to God and judge those who refuse his grace. This was the day of the Lord. But it was not yet clear that the day of the Lord would really come in two parts. That first would come grace, followed by judgment when Jesus comes again. Friends, how will Jesus do that? How will he show grace and save those who repent? By taking judgment on himself. Look at the last few verses. Verse 21 starting. Now when all the people were baptized and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. It's the biggest transition so far in Luke. Here we see... John and Jesus have been trading places in the narrative of them as infants leading up to this point. But at this point, John's going to just fade into the background. We'll only hear from him one more time. Jesus will take center stage. God himself speaks, declares that Jesus is his son, come as a Messiah to save his people. But we'll talk more about this next week as well. We're going to cover these same verses 21 and 22 next week. There's so much here. But notice the the context of this declaration from God the Father to God the Son. Jesus is being baptized by John. The way Luke writes it, he just kind of like goes over that detail. But think about it. Doesn't that strike you as odd? What have we just been saying this whole time about what John's baptism represents? What's the theme of our service? Sinners must repent. And John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for sin. 
John's baptism represents a heart soft to God's conviction. It represents repentance in the innermost part of our souls, the the leaving of pride and self-righteousness and the readiness for God's gracious deliverance. Repentance is the way that the spiritual road of our hearts is leveled and prepared for God's salvation. John's repentance is for sinners who know their need. But who is Jesus? He's no sinner. He has no need. Who is Jesus? He's the very son of God. Why in the world is Jesus being baptized? Jesus is being baptized to show what he's come to do. At one point, he will be the judge who threshes the wheat, who delivers his people from the wrath to come and judges those who have rejected him to everlasting torment. But first, he will be threshed himself by God's winnowing fork. First, he will experience the wrath of God to come himself. First, he will be judged by the judge himself for us. Jesus is being baptized here to identify with sinners. He's going to take his people's Sin on himself. He will go all the way to the cross sinless so he can bear our sin and give us forgiveness. That's why he's being baptized. If you're here and you don't trust in Jesus and in his death in the place of sinners, if you haven't repented and turned to him for salvation, you will be condemned. God's judging, winnowing fork will toss up all and you will be carried away to wrath. But today, today, if you will turn from your sin, the sin that's killing you, to the loving embrace of Jesus who has been killed for you, you will be saved. The wrath rightly destined for your sin will instead be heaped on Jesus. Turn and be saved. If you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you more afterwards. Turn and be saved. And church, when I was thinking about these last few verses and seeing Jesus doing that, I was just thinking, shouldn't that melt our hearts? I think I was reading this past week a, a quote and, about the pastor's role, and, and it says something like, the pastor's role ought to be Nurturing in his congregation just a deeper love for Jesus year by year. I think this is a text that does that for me as well as all of us. Doesn't the sight of Jesus stooping to being baptized in a baptism of repentance for sinners just melt your heart in love for him? If you're reading this for the first time, I think perhaps you'd expect, you're like, okay, John's doing this. Jesus is coming on the scene. I think you kind of expect Jesus to kind of pick up the proverbial mic and start emceeing the baptism ceremony, right? Or you'd expect him to kind of like wait in the wings until his grand entrance and everyone would be like, oh, wow, that bad hit him. Whoa, cool. But he comes as one of his own. He comes as one of his sinful people to be baptized by John. One author writes, Jesus' baptism is a powerful picture of the truth that the sinless Son of God would be willing to identify himself with the sinful sons of God. 
Jesus came to take God's wrath so we could hear what he hears. So we could hear our God say, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. Repentance is good news because it brings us that kind of savior. Why would we not, Christian, why would we not, church, live daily in repentance, turning from our own sin to receive the grace of that kind of Savior? Let's humble our hearts and pray together. Lord, we are humbled by your love for us. We pray for those of us in our church family here this morning struggling with repentance, struggling to turn to you. Would you pour out your grace on this church? Would you bring us near to yourself in true belief and true repentance? Thank you, Jesus, for coming to die for us, to identify with us so you could become sin for us. And we could become the righteousness of Christ. Lord, we pray that you be with us now as we respond to your message with a song of repentance and faith. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.